In this episode, we speak with Vivek Sunder, CEO of QMath, an online supplemental learning platform. QMath started in India in 2013 with a mission to transform the way children learn math. The company started as an offline tutoring center with a small group of students, but is now the world's leading online math education platform. Backed by marquee investors such as Google and Sequoia, QMath is present in over 80 countries today and is trusted by over 200,000 students for all their math needs. Prior to working at QMath, Sunder worked for more than two decades at P&G and served as CEO of Swiggy, an India-based food ordering and delivery platform. Sunder leads QMath's mission to be a global math powerhouse with 21st century techniques and technology. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click the subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Vivek, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. RJ, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So thank you for calling me. Where I'd like to start is the importance of education, even in the states where we have a well-developed educational system and math is a priority, parents still seek out more math training beyond what's offered in school. Your company is predicated on improving math education and making it accessible to everyone. I'm very excited to learn more. Obviously, when Sequoia and Google back a company, it means something. So please tell us about QMath. Math is a passion for me, but even more than me, it's a passion for our founder. He's at heart a math teacher. So Manan started this company, not in the current name, but he's been teaching math for the last 15 years. He's personally taught over 10,000 kids. So as he'd like to say, he's made a lot of mistakes in knowing how to teach, but equally knowing how not to teach. And one of the resonance that I've had with him since the time I've taken over, or even before I took over here, is how aligned we are on the fact that math education around the world is fundamentally broken. It makes at least half the population of a perfectly math potential population start hating the subject, not start loving it. And so while the government does all the right noises and says STEM is important and parents also understand that, the reality is that if there is a problem in the way math is taught, you're going to have young kids walk away from it. They're going to like more tangible subjects more. It's not right in our opinion to make a sixth grader rote memorize fancy Greek letters and say that's important, right? Because they don't get the tangible value of it. And so Manan redefined how math is taught. That's our secret sauce. We actually teach it very differently from the way it's been taught conventionally around the world. I got inspired by it. I've been a teacher myself for the last 20 years. So we just said, hey, look, you love teaching math. Why don't you go focus on pedagogy and curriculum and all that cool stuff that parent comes to us for? And my experience of having lived and worked in multiple countries around the world, worked for a multinational called Procter & Gamble, meant that I kind of knew how to take a consumer-facing business global. So our business is today 80% global. And what we pride ourselves on is the fact that the way we teach makes it very easy for every single kid to learn. We actually reject 0% of our kids. Anybody who can come to us, we say, well, we can take you from where you are to something better. 
and we actually have a very, very high course completion rate. We have over a 98% course completion rate, which actually means that they stay with us for the six to 12 months that they come for and they get improved from where they began. So it's something which for me, even though I didn't start it, I still have pride every day about what we do. Now, is the difference between what you teach or how you teach, is it that dramatic between what can be offered somewhere else? What is it that if a parent were to look at your materials, maybe in their videos, et cetera, what would they immediately notice is the difference? I think parents would make a decision based on a composite of variables. I mean, after all, we don't choose a house based on one variable or a job based on one variable. I think for this, they're looking for two things, which any consumer-facing business has to focus on. One is real value. Am I getting real value? And secondly, am I paying reasonable money for it? And in sort of marketing terms, is it good value for money? And what we pride ourselves on is that we try to win both the value equation as well as the money equation. And since we're a math company, let me sort of talk about both sides of the equation. So let's start about value because that's really what matters to us. So the QMath way is a secret sauce. We do believe that. Now, do I have full data to believe that there is not a single other maths teacher in the world that's teaching in the QMath way? I don't think so. I mean, that would be hubris to think that there's nobody in the world who's teaching it our way. But what we do know is we don't teach it the way conventional school teachers teach. And that is a secret sauce. So we teach students fundamentally to understand the why behind the what and to love math. We don't say you're learning math because you can crack an exam or you can get ahead in life or do some SATs or whatever. I mean, sure, all of that parents understand it, but it's fundamentally to say math is a life skill and we think it can be learned by everybody and loved by everybody. And there is no such thing as you're born with math aptitude and you're born without math aptitude. Sure, there will be differences, but it's fundamentally a skill that everybody can learn and be good at. I mean, we don't say the same about driving or sure, you know, only a few people can be a Formula One driver, but everybody can drive. And it's the same way we feel about math, that everybody should learn how to do math. And it's a good life skill to have. So that's the first thing. We reduce the need to rote memorize and make it very visual, Ajay. Uh, very, very few times would a kid have to go through Greek sort of, you know, formulae and stuff like that. A lot of terms will be converted into a visual way to understand it. So rather than say that the way to divide a pizza is to sort of do pi r square and divide and all of that, we'll actually just show a circle in a form of a pizza and every kid knows how a pizza cutter works. And we'll actually show them about how to make three pieces and four pieces and how does that actually translate into area. So because you make it so visual, it sort of appeals to everybody. It's a bit like if I were to show you road signs and you know bathroom signs and stuff like that, the most universal and intuitive way to tell people where this is, is visual, right? Humans are more visual than they are textual, and that's part of our secret sauce. So it's a very intuitive, human intuitive way to learn math. The second thing is that we don't believe that tech is an end in itself. Of course, we are an edge tech, but we believe ed comes before tech. So we actually empower 8,000 passionate tutors to teach kids leveraging technology but we don't just say, let technology do everything because these are young kids. They connect better with a human. They connect better with somebody who understands them, empathizes with them, and then uses technology to do the job. And we do that one-on-one. We don't do it in a one is to 20 format. However good a teacher is, RJ, even if it's an amazing school, it'll still have one is to 10, one is to 20. And the trouble with one is to 10 is every human being is unique. And if a kid is too fast, then the teacher can't deal with that. If the kid is too slow, the teacher can't deal with that. 
and therefore the teacher is sort of aiming at the median in a case of a one is to 20. We do one is to one. So if your kid is slow in a certain subject, we'll slow it down. If the kid is already good at a certain things, we'll make it speedier. So we are essentially moderating the kind of way in which we teach as well as the personalization. We call it hyper-personalization. We can teach your son and your daughter in a different way because I'm sure if you're a parent, you will agree that while they share 99% of genes, they're very different people. And so that's what we do. So we actually have a lot of siblings with us, often taught by the same teacher. The teacher would be teaching differently to the same house because it's the power of one is to one. And so that's the first part of it, which is great value. The second part of it is money. I mean, you're calling me from the US. We've actually got research across 85 countries. And we know that if in the US you had to do one-on-one personalized tutoring, after-school tutoring, it could be between $30 to $60 an hour, right? Our product is one is to one, 25 US dollars. I mean, parents often sort of say, wow, how does that even work? And we say that's because we've leveraged technology to make things cheaper. But we also have teachers who are doing this because of a passion and not necessarily because this is their profession. I mean, eventually it becomes their profession. But we get people who could be computer science professionals. We could get people who didn't want to do the crazy grind in a bank and decided, hey, I love math, but I don't want to sit in a bank and just you know do a crazy work-life balance. So we don't actually have pure play maths teachers in our 8,000. Obviously, we do as well. But we get a diverse set of people from different walks of life who have two passions, teaching and kids and math. And when you put the two together and give them the technology platform that we have, it enables them to teach all over the world and teach them in a way that is great value for money. So we charge only 25 US dollars for a one-is-to-one personalized coaching. And that's great value for money for most of our American, British, and global parents. So we've essentially, therefore, a 100% made in India product but it's a designed for the world product. So we have US Common Core, we have Texas curriculum, we have Florida. I mean, we know that in America, there is a common core, but there are different sort of curricula that are out there and Britain is different. So we have modified and created the product that suits that country. And we've got teachers outside of the US and therefore we're able to offer fantastic value for money. So when you put all of it together, it just becomes an incredible package because there could be some amazing teachers in the US. Of course there are but it's not economically viable for them to offer such great value at 25 USD. So we are leveraging power of the global market to deliver great value for money, which is why we have very high retention rates and very high referral rates. Over half of our new student acquisition comes from what we call the referral funnel. That's usually the power of a great brand if over half your customers are coming from existing customers. You mentioned customization and the fact that you are in touch, you know what the curriculums are in these various states. And certain schools will have very particular math programs and you want your child to do well in those particular programs. And then on top of it, you have standardized tests such as the SSATs or other regional tests. Do your tutors have the ability to, you know, at the front end of the teaching session, say the parent would provide, okay, here is what my child has to do well at, and then create a program so that it suits that particular child's school and area? Yeah, so absolutely is the answer, RJ. I wouldn't say we do it well for everything in the world because of course we hear, hear new things as well. We recently entered Australia and just like you mentioned SSAT, for example, in the US, out there we have something called NAPLAN, which is unique to Australia. Now, did we know about NAPLAN? No, we didn't. But we heard it in one of our, what we call student advisory call. And we said, oh, what is that? We need to basically equip ourselves. So we'll take a few months, equip our teachers with NAPLAN. 
And armed with that, then we'll go back to the market and say, hey, listen, we now know Naplan. And so if you're looking for Naplan, we'll be able to offer it. So I think the short answer is being one-on-one allows us the flexibility to be able to figure out what that unique child wants and be able to offer it. So the sales process, RJ, reflects that. So the sales process consists of a 20-minute program. Now, of course, it's productized as well, so you could also fill it in and give it to us on our website. But if you choose to speak to us, we, our salespeople will ask you a bunch of questions. And those bunch of questions is what we call your need assessment. And we will then feed that into our computer and say, okay, which teachers are fit to do that need? And you could say, hey, this is a US kid studying in Texas curriculum, but the parent wants us to do International Maths Olympiad. So let's find somebody who's adept at Texas curriculum and is International Maths Olympiad trained. And let's find a teacher within our 8,000. And once we find that, then we do an introductory call between the teacher and the parent. And if the parent says, yep, that makes sense. And then we start off. And by definition, therefore, because we have taken in the key need, the plan that we have made, what we call the QMath learning plan, is customized to that one child based on the need that is for younger kids expressed by the parent and for older kids expressed by the kid himself. Now, you mentioned global. Can you give us a sense of the percentages of your allocation of customers? Where are they? And where do you see the most opportunity? So the market I'm speaking to you in, Ajay, which is the US, is by far our largest market. Over a third of our business happens in the US already. And this for a company that operates in 80 countries, one country alone contributing over 33% is a pretty sizable number. We actually think the market in the US is deep, it's wide, and parents care and are willing to pay. And therefore, that's our number one market. In fact, we've just established a US business unit. We actually have a new US CEO. He's a passionate education professional. He's based out there. And in fact, I was there recently to speak to him and understand the differences in the US and the role of state and the role of the central federal government and all of that in education. And therefore, how can we customize ourselves to the US? India being our home market is the second biggest market. It has another about a third of our total revenue. And the remaining third is spread across the 80 countries we operate in. We offer English medium education. So of course, that would take out some of parts of Francophone or Lusophone Africa or the Spanish-speaking Latin America or indeed continental Europe. But anywhere maths is taught in an English medium, we're there. So that's the 80 countries that I just spoke about. And do you partner with certain schools? It can be controversial. You know, we have a situation here where kids choose to do external math training and then they get the class and they know everything already. And the teacher's like, well, could you slow down a little bit because I have to teach the rest of the class? So that's an interesting dilemma. And are our teachers our partners? Are they our competitors? Honestly, we've not tried to solve that problem for the world because this thing is, in some cases, the teacher is happy, right? Because the child is struggling and she's not able to provide individualized attention at a 1 is to 20 with all the workload teachers have. So if somebody outside of the school has helped bolster the child and make the child better, and it effectively will reflect in her scores and her sort of student outcomes, she's happy that the parent has chosen to do that. In some other cases, if the child is really gifted and she's not able to focus on that child, she's actually happy that somebody is helping the child not get bored and achieve their true potential or go after external tests like Maths Olympiad, etc. So I think by and large, teachers are either neutral to us or are positive. There could be some cases where the teacher is saying, hey, this is annoying that you're taking outside tuition and you're now sort of you know disrupting the class. We've heard that, but so rarely that it's not a problem we worry about. I think the benefits far outweigh any potential costs. 
Now, tell us all a bit about your background. You worked in Procter & Gamble for, it sounds like, two decades in various capacities in various parts of the world. Tell us about your background and how it's equipped you to be a CEO of an ed tech company. So PNG is an amazing, it's literally somebody called it an MBA outside of MB school. You could join without a single knowledge of how marketing works or distribution works or production works, and they'll just teach you first principles, right? Effectively, they teach you to think, they teach you to communicate, they teach you to lead, and they teach you to essentially create great leaders behind you so that it's sustainable. I mean, it wouldn't have lasted 180 years if it relied only one or two good people, right? It, many people would call it a CEO factory. So I was privileged to be working in PNG from 97 onwards, as you said, two decades. And the other cool thing about PNG is that it's global. I think it operates in pretty much every country that's in the United Nations, which makes it truly global. And as a result, you learn three things, how to work in very different environments, how to work with different cultures, and how to understand the similarities and the differences in each of those countries for the products that you have and how to make it fit, both from a go-to-market point of view as well as from a marketing point of view. And I think that that skill helps me immensely, not just in EdTech, which is where I am, but in frankly, any other company that I would choose to work in. I truly believe that it's made me sort of fit to work in any industry, any country in the world. And that's a very, very privileged feeling to have. It's I'm obviously grateful for the schooling that I got in PNG. I also have great mentors there. So that also helps, you know, when you're the folk of your career and you're wanting to speak to a mentor, it's such a safe environment to speak to a PNG mentor and sort of talk about the choices and why you're making the choices. So I think in two ways, it equipped me to do this job. One is global consumer company. That's really what PNG is. And that's what QMAT's ambition is. It's a direct-to-consumer company that has a global ambition. And therefore, when the founder looked at my experiences, one of the things he said was, you should lead this company and take it to its true global potential. And the second way in which PNG helps is it's at the heart a fantastic marketing company. And therefore, it teaches you to do two things. Really understand what consumers are thinking and feeling and translate that insight into action. Many people struggle at inciting and they just act and they sort of say, let me act. And the consumer will tell me whether it is a right action or a wrong action. Well, sure, but the time it's going to take to act and then for the consumer to give you feedback, you're better off in understanding. And the thing which I find amazing is if you learn how to ask the consumers the right way and to observe them, often they will tell you what is it that is a good business that they're willing to pay for. And I think that insight, the, you know, I've worked across different countries in PNG, across different categories in PNG. I worked in food technology before this. I worked in Swiggy, which is the equivalent of Uber Eats in India, except that it's the biggest in India. How different is food delivery, which is usually used by younger people, young time-starved professionals, versus edtech, which is bought by older, obviously, families with kids and so on and so forth. But it doesn't matter. I could be selling adult incontinence to silver-haired people, and I would still learn how to understand their needs and to be able to service to them. What's been the biggest challenge moving from a large conglomerate like P&G to running, I guess, a smaller but fast growth company? The first thing you miss with P&G is just the systems and the processes, right? I mean, you want executives to focus on the business and pretty much nothing else. But in a startup, there'll be a lot of things that you'll need to do that you just wish you had somebody else to do it for you. But that's the nature of the beast. So in the beginning, 
when you had to basically do all the heavy lifting of recruitment and you didn't have fantastic talent supply people, global human resource people who can basically get you fantastic talent. It takes up a bit of your time. You're itching to go and solve the consumer problem, but you realize you've got to sort out an office, right? I mean, a new office. You're itching to sort out another consumer complaint or a customer complaint, and then you realize, oh, I have to do fundraising. I, I think most people think of fundraising as an amazing thing to do. Well, sure, it's a great feeling to see validation by blue chip investors like what we have. But let's be honest, the average PNG professional is wasting very little of his time in fundraising and spending a lot of his time in using that money carefully. And I do think that while fundraising is fun, it's something that you have to learn how to do because in a startup, of course, you're in a high growth mode. You don't have the capital to be able to achieve your ambition. So you have to rely on partners and investors to do that. So I think in a sense, you have certain muscles that are very unused when you're in a large startup and you just realize that, oh my God, when you're using those muscles after 20 years of disuse, it does hurt, right? I mean, if you can get my analogy. So there's at least 10 muscles I can think of that I've had to use for the first time in 20 years after going to a startup. And it hurts like going to a gym for the first time. But this is my second startup. So once I'd done it with Swiggy, it became relatively easier here at QMAT. And can you tell us about the value that your investors have provided beyond simple financial capital? Yeah, so we're lucky, as you pointed out, that we truly have an international set of investors. In fact, our board meeting can only be in a tiny window of two hours in a day because that's the time when folks in San Francisco, London, Abu Dhabi, Singapore, and Bangalore are all awake. And that's an amazingly diverse set of investors. And I think it means that when we are actually trying to be a global company, the fact that they naturally live in those countries, are consumers there, a lot of their investments are in those countries means we can actually tap into those expertise to globalize. That would have not been the case if all my investors were on a street next door in Bangalore. I mean, there are some very good investors here, but we are lucky that we actually have a truly global set of investors, which then means as you try to globalize, you actually have a natural, what is called consultant set to tap into. So that's the first value. The second value is one of our investors actually has worked in a global educational firm, and she's actually spent half a decade, if not more, in that firm. So she has real operating experience as an operator, not just an investor. So I could just reach out and say, hey, listen, when you were there, how did you do this? So I'm actually getting somebody who's done this a few years before me to be able to tell me the path to traverse and the path to not traverse. And I think that's huge value for us. And the third one is that education is so big and so vast and so deep that we can't boil the ocean and solve all the problems ourselves. So the fact that they have connected us to other portfolio companies in their portfolio to say, hey, listen, you're looking for AI to be able to do doubt solving for a typical grade eight math problem. We have a portfolio company in New York City, which seems to have done it. We'll connect you to them and why don't you talk and maybe you can partner, maybe you can acquire, maybe you can do a JV, that kind of network. I mean, this is a homegrown, born in India company. We would never be able to figure out who's doing what in the rest of the world because Googling won't help, right? So we actually, rather than Googling it, we ask Google, who's on a cap table, and say, hey, why don't you tell us in your portfolio who's there? And they've connected us to some amazing people. Those are the three things other than the money that we value in our investors. Okay, last two questions. One, can you tell us about a book that you've read that has had an impact on you? So this is um, Thinking Fast and Slow by mm -hmm. Kahneman. It's a thick book. <laughs> I know most people who start reading it and don't finish it. I was lucky that I was sort of enthralled by the book. So I basically read it cover to cover. It's actually the so-called OG or the original foundational book based on which a lot of other books have been written on behavioral economics. So the reason why I found that specifically profound in the impact it's had on me is 
my background is entirely left brain logical stem you know i was a stem student through school high school then engineering computer engineering in undergrad and then a business school degree in a place which is very left brain logical problem solving you know the stuff that consultants and investment banks would love to recruit in and then i joined a very logical company called png and all of that was good but you realize that having a non ambidextrous brain is dangerous when you're a consumer because consumers don't behave rationally consumers behave like consumers consumers behave like humans there's a mixture of rationality and emotions involved so understanding how the fast brain works how the slow brain works how can a company then tap into that insight to market to them is invaluable i've often found that that has allowed me to do counter intuitive stuff and still be successful because i know that there is a foundation of behavioral economics that is underpinning my counter intuitiveness and therefore i have the confidence that it will be successful otherwise for any professional whether you're a ceo or a mid level executive doing counter intuitive steps is risky no human being likes to venture into the complete darkness right so i've been confident that this provided me a framework to say look i think it will work because this behavioral economics tenet is embedded in this crazy counter intuitive bit so i've just been lucky that in my last 10 years i've been sort of a contrarian seller or marketer or business leader in addition to knowing how the conventional stuff works last question can you tell us about a person you admire and that could be in any domain or field of expertise so i actually i'm going to try to fudge this one aj i'm going to basically say that there is no one human being that i particularly admire i genuinely believe that nature or or god has been kind in giving lots of people lots of amazing skills so for example i'm a big fan of lee kuan yew the erstwhile founder and prime minister of singapore and what he did i mean to take a country and move it from third world to first world in one generation is absolutely amazing i also love warren buffett for his timeless quotes not just on investing i'm not a big investor myself but he's actually given some very amazing tenets on how to hire people as smart as he is he's talked about hiring for attitude and values much more than hiring for intelligence right and i've also loved steve jobs as a i mean obviously as a technophile i love it but because i think he was perfectionist in a way that wasn't slowing business down but actually making business faster most people think that perfectionism will slow you down because you're trying to obsess about the small thing and you got to be fast and ship stuff and yes he was fast and he was impatient but i think his consumer perfectionism is a amazing amazing thing i mean i'm doing this podcast using some of the equipment he's made so i do love these three but i actually wanted to end by saying as good as these three are i don't know them in fact two of them are not even on this planet so i'd like to basically call out two leaders that i have personally worked with both in my png days uh, one is still with png he's actually the global chief operating officer and his name is shelish and the other one is my first country ceo at png called gary and i learned lots of things but i learned two things that are even today 26 years later i remember one is from gary he was a country ceo i mean we would think that his life is busy 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 and it was but he allowed me access to his calendar and i noticed one astounding trait 70% of his calendar was spent on people and 30% was spent on the business and i was like hey you're a ceo you're spending 70% of your time on people stuff and that could be in reviewing top talent that could be in going and recruiting that could be in coaching sessions that could be in performance management sessions the whole shebang everything to do with people and he said do i ship a single case you do if i find the right kind of you if i motivate you and if i tell you what is the better way of doing it you do it for me and i become a hero because of you guys 
And to see somebody doing it, because I actually secretly asked his assistant to tell me how he spends his time. And then I sort of confronted him with it. It was an amazing learning on leadership. And he's still a good friend. And I love this fact of doing business through people. And Shelish is a mentor of mine, but he gave me a concept which when I see it happening, it's amazing. He's a senior guy. I mean, he's a global chief operating officer, right? And he says that every time I speak to my mentees, which is folks like you, I'm actually having reverse mentorship happening. He says, you think you're gaining from me, a big shot guy, you know, country, global chief operating officer. He says, no, every time I speak to people like you, I'm learning something new because often you're closer to technology. Often you've learned some things that I haven't. So he says, I look at these things because I used to ask him, I said, every time I ask for time, you give it to me and you're a big shot guy with a crazy calendar. Why is that? He says, because it's not unilateral. You gain from these conversations. So do I. It's called reverse mentorship. And so I do a lot of reverse mentorship inspired by him. And so these are two people in a more tangible manner to me that I'm inspired by. Well, Vivek, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really do appreciate all of your insights. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ajay. A pleasure talking to you.